Section 11 of The Desirable Alien at Home in Germany by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 Waiters and Policemen. I have known many waiters, German and not otherwise, but I have never known a waiter like Le Bel Ernst. Mais c'est la folie, Joseph Leopold used to exclaim when he heard me expatiating in season and out of season on the monumental virtues of this young man i will try to describe him of the images conjured up by the word waiter ernst possesses only one attribute he is german a waiter who is not german is superhuman unless he is swiss and all waiters are slavish, seedy, sycophantish, anemic, impertinent, and indifferent. Ernst cannot be thus described. Firm-fleshed, stout but not fat, he is positively handsome in a blond Napoleonic way, with a chest and a stomach like a soldier's, that is to say, decently and becomingly bombé, under his white apron of service, not servitude, this is the best physical description I can give of the life and soul, and may I add, of the stomach, of the R Hotel in Marburg. Of course, his erect carriage might be attributed to the fact that he has served, but then German waiters in England, who cringe and fawn and poke, have presumably also served their country for a span. But the anemia of the English variety is supposed to be the result of the conditions so unfavourable to digestion of life in the restaurant, the hurried meals, the close atmosphere. But who that had seen Ernst snatch a hasty mouthful halfway through his labours of the evening meal would doubt if he himself took these conditions into consideration at all. We used to see him when he thought there was time, or might possibly be time, a poor three minutes or so, settle himself at one of the tables, fetch a plateful from the buttery hatch and begin to stoke with one eye on the favoured customer and the other on the saal in general after three mouthfuls or so the urgent wanton call would come and ernst would rise calmly and attend any felt want and as easily subside into his place again eat some more to rise again at least five times before his immediate hunger could possibly be satisfied I have never seen anything in England like the machine-like efficiency of this firm piece of flesh and blood. I was never tired of setting it in motion and watching the ensuing steady roll across the Speisesaal. I admired the sweep of the arm, the indicative flourish with which he pointed out the table where he and the management would prefer one to sit, and the adroitness with which he effected the removal of soiled napkins and outworn dishes his eye bright small and universally bestowed his firm white hands that deposited the dish one had asked for and none other in front of one on the really clean white tablecloth i remember the first time i saw him weary and dejected we had both flung ourselves onto a red plush covered settee in front of the table that seemed to us the most likely and pleasant and beckoned condescendingly to the Lohengrin-like figure that hovered, if anything so solid could be said to hover, in the dim penumbra of the unlighted part of the Speisensaal near the door, 
where stag's antlers with heavy coats hung upon them rendered the wall one sheet of mysterious blackness close to the white figure outlined thereon was the bar where glancing brass levers functioned and bottles of liqueurs with their variegated labels bearing names of awe stood about handled by a forbidding-looking female who bore no sort of affinity to their vicious and decadent contents behind this angular female a more opulently contoured variety of the sex seemed to be continually surging in from the kitchen behind there were steaming beetle-browed women bearing plates that seemed heavy and which they slammed down as if they were very hot in front of the austerer hebe who manipulated the levers and poured out the foaming box that were to wash down the viands there lohengrin stood while elsa and ortrud functioned appropriately under his direction majestically he commanded and never spoke Lebel ernst for this was he began his ministrations on our behalf by politely heading us off the stammtisch where it would have been death to us to presume to sit and then like an ambulant hardly animated penny in the slot machine complacently but not slavishly he took our order he was a trifle austere at first for he did not know us but even later on i cannot say he smiled he did not at any rate smile with his lips an american might have said that he smiled a very little all over at any rate we were just able to infer that he liked us of course there are no waiters like ernst in england and the reason is obvious ernst had no desire to learn english for he can do very well without it england only gets the inferior artist who thinks to raise his salary by the acquiring of this merely meretricious advantage ernst on the face of him needs none of these adventitious aids to success he manages quite well without talking anybody's language at all we fell across quite another variety of the german waiter at home at trier the good dear nervous soul spoke all languages but was conversant with none he had been in england and he detected the trace of the alien in me at once one evening when we were going to be out late and we started early i left the task of ordering dinner to him trust me madame you shall have a dinner all right he had wagged his head and said and when weary with our long day riding in a train all the way up the mosel to cochem we came in and sat down lumpishly and called for our mess it proved to be the worst dinner we had ever struck in all our days impossible fish swimming in water that had not been adequately drained tasteless chops unredeemed by garlic or onion a pudding yes a pudding of rice and jam i cannot tell you don't eat he remarked bitterly chagrined and i had ordered such a nice little dinner for you one that i thought you would like all english cuisine à l'eau we explained very softly but we were not leaving just yet that we weren't english didn't want to be english would have hated english cookery even if we had been english 
poor dear. He was not angry, but saddened and depressed for the remainder of our stay. He wore no nice white apron tied round his middle like Le Belle Ernst, only the wretched swallow-tailed bastard evening dress of usage. I have never, I believe, seen Ernst without his eternal apron, with the delicate tape-strings tied carefully round his waist, as it were, pour désigner un peu la taille. No, I am forgetting. I saw Ernst once in Mufti, and it was on a Sunday. Coming round the corner from Marchese's, a sailor hat was taken off to me, not flourished, and I received a smart bow and a muttered salutation from a blue serge-clad youth with a jaunty stick in his hand, which warned me to say my obligatory tug and look at the holiday face and get up of the light of the Speisesaal. Ernst knew what every waiter ought to know and never does, or else he knows it incorrectly, and that is the times of trains and buses and the best way to use the modes of transit obtaining in the district in which one happens to be. He was able to tell us where to go for tea or where to walk and where to buy an English newspaper and what day the cinematograph treated its patrons to a change of programme a matter of the first importance to joseph leopold and he even took upon himself the duty of telling us when to look out of the window we happened to be at marburg on sedan day english people have no idea what an important day that is in germany at least english people who have not toiled up the vine-clad slopes above rudesheim to the denkmal the immense memorial Germany raised to the dead of the Franco-Prussian War. On a pouring wet day, the whole town council of Marburg turned out in tailcoats and top hats and with white scarves round their middles and went in procession up the narrow main streets. All the students' corps went too, and many costumed persons belonging to the old custom-ridden town. It was a long, long business, and before they had all passed out of sight, our breakfast was quite cold. The festivities lasted all day and well into the evening. The procession passed again, just after dusk, and this time the little boys were furnished with coloured Chinese lanterns. Past our windows they went again, and up the steep main street, right through the town to the Schloss on top. They looked like an army of great pink toadstools as they climbed and were lost to view. We followed, and took our after-dinner coffee as usual at Marchese's, so as to see a little more of them. There are a great many cafés in Marburg, but Marchese's is the more popular. Out of the dim, ill-lighted street, one passes into a covered way leading to a bar, and then further to a room with a large stove in the middle dotted with little tables where women and men sit drinking coffee and beer and syrups and grenadines and eating large slabs of indigestible cake for their soul's entertainment they read the daily papers glance at the illustrated ones and play dominoes or knit we passed through that room on to the veranda open to the night this veranda is perched on a dizzy height 
and seems to project far over the back street of the town, and one looks down onto the river Lahn. It reminded me of the view from one of the canons' houses onto the banks at Durham. Marburg often does remind me of my native city. It has just such another embattled situation. We took up our places in the balcony and our legs and the ferules of our umbrellas got wound up with the spokes of the railing balusters. Then we ordered ices and coffee. After dinner coffee at a restaurant in Germany is always served with the accompaniment of a small squat glass of water with a spoon laid formally across it. Why? I asked Joseph Leopold. In order that you may sanitarily dip your spoon into the water before you use it in your coffee, he replies. Then he gets hold of Simplicissimus as usual and reads me the jokes, translating when necessary, and it is mostly necessary. We amuse ourselves by trying to see where the joke comes in. We hardly hope to be amused with the joke itself. With a good deal of bon volonté, we sometimes are able to perceive a gleam of humour, only a gleam. But there is always plenty of savage spite against the Kaiser, and indecencies apropos of this great personage, far more serious than those slanderous suggestions with regard to King Edward, which, exhibited once on a Paris kiosk, were so deeply resented by England. His subjects relish this sort of thing, and the Kaiser does not care to spoil their fun. So, it is tacitly agreed that he is to be fair game. Though high game, it seems to me, in more senses than one, for Joseph Leopold does not think of translating some of these poems to me. Then we go home again by the low way, that is to say, by the road which we have been looking down on from Marchese's balcony. The streets that part from it at right angles to scale the hill are like staircases, so steep are they. We have to make a loop to go down. We go past the great fortress-like houses, closed and unlit. The inhabitants are all out at the civic merrymaking, and the spectacular Great Dane usually waits at the door, crouched under the carven porch until his master shall return and take him into the house with his wife and children and everything else that is his. On the doorsteps of a house tenanted by folk of inferior social standing who did not run to a guardian Great Dane, we noticed a little patient girl sitting with a baby in her arms. The small unlit window of the house behind her seemed to be crammed with articles of a confused description. By day it was probably an unromantic hovel, but at night it was weird and mysterious, like the house where Gretchen lived with her mother until Faust came. The child looked very forlorn, and we asked why she did not take the baby into the house and warm it. She replied that her mother had gone out and put the key in her pocket. What a cruel mother, I said to Joseph Leopold. Not at all. The whole family went out on a spree, and the mother probably sent the child on home because it was getting late. The contents of the shop are too valuable to be left at the mercy of a key in the hands of a child. 
and it is a warm night. Don't be so ready with your sympathy in Germany. But what about the police, with their excellent dogs you tell me about? I ask pertinaciously. The German police are not allowed to carry arms any more than the English, but they are given better support than a truncheon. Footnote. This is a nonsense. The German police carry swords, revolvers, carbines, knuckle-dusters, bludgeons, and any lethal weapon that may occur to the individual fancy of the police minister of that particular state. And the reason why that door was so carefully locked, and that, although you could trust almost every lay inhabitant of almost every German city or village, you stand in deadly fear of the policeman, who, if he does not rob and murder you, will certainly subject you to blackmail if he gets a chance of getting hold of your papers. The police dogs are generally under the control of members of a more intelligent and trustworthy surety force, who are less armed and much less disastrous to have in the house. J.L.F. M.H. End footnote. The trained dog, which they are privileged to take about with them, is a far more efficient weapon of defence and attack. Though they cannot, in the heat of argument, recklessly draw or fire it, the dog won't stand by and see his master attacked. He is trained to wait to go for the assailant until that pass has been reached. Then, I am told, there is no need, as there is so often in England, for some plucky woman to rush into the melee and blow the whistle depending from the neck of the helpless guardian of the law. The dog is quite equal to his work. He is not exactly savage, but he is not to be petted by any chance stranger when he is out on business. It took me, it takes me, a long time to realise that, for I always want to talk to animals when I meet them. But these police dogs are not inviting, though I believe people do buy them and take them to their hearths and homes in England. And by a succession of steep gradients, we are at last come to the low, level road, and look up and see the light shining through my Casey's balcony, the frail projection where we had only half an hour ago been sitting and supping our coffee. I began, why don't they... That warm autumn night, when young blood was probably excited by the fate day, we heard a serenade. It happened to be sung under our windows, but was addressed to the young wife of the son of Philippe Shaw, the cub flashes over the way, newly married that very morning. On the rough cobblestones under the pale starlight, a little choir of six sang carefully without wildness or enthusiasm, but with a grave and touching earnestness, three-part songs of an epithalamic character. They must have known the parts by heart, for they had no light except a tiny lantern slung on a stick to illuminate the score of the conductor. The songs were so sweet, so serious, so dignified in their dreaming cadences, that we two, hanging stilly over our window bars, wished the concert would go on all night, to the accompaniment of the quiet chime from the tower of the Elizabethan Kirche. But no, the three songs were duly sung through, and there were no encores permitted. 
we outsiders did not dare to offer our thanks and none came from the windows gratefully flung open of the bridal chamber soon in silence and soft unison as they had chanted the six songsters departed and the pitter-pat of their felt-shod feet sounded faintly and then not at all on the cobblestones the window opposite was gently closed trust the german to dread the night air even on his wedding night end of section 11